Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Doug Nelson, and I uh, am, among other things, uh, uh, the vice chairman of an organization called the Heart Mountain Wyoming Foundation, which is a nonprofit uh, that has um, existed for the last 20 years to uh, preserve the history, the site, uh, and the significance of the Japanese-American experience during World War II. It's located on the site of the Heart Mountain Concentration Camp, which is about 70 miles um, east of uh, Yellowstone Park in a very remote location. And the mission of that uh, foundation um, is to not just honor the um, suffering and survival of uh, thousands of people uh, but to uh, help extract the lessons, keep the story alive, and find uh, grounds for uh, enlightening uh, our view of the present and, and the future. Um, I think tonight will be an occasion for some really important conversations. I want to go out of my way to thank the Unitarian Society for making this um, exceptional space available for these conversations tonight. Um, I've warned Sam that we should try our hardest uh, to uh, conclude uh, the presentation and his conversations in uh, less than uh, an hour and 40 minutes uh, because uh, Frank Lloyd Wright uh, designed these seats uh, uh, and they have a, a uh, attention lifespan of about an hour and a half before people have to stretch. Um, actually, the... Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, Sam. Uh, in addition to being my friend, he is also a member of the board of directors of the Heart Mountain Wyoming uh, Foundation. When he was nine years of age, uh, he and his family and 120,000 other persons of Japanese ancestry who lived in California, Washington, and Oregon uh, were uprooted, dispossessed of virtually uh, all of their possessions, uh, instructed to um, retain only those things that they could carry in a suitcase, and then were forcibly removed to 10 remote locations uh, in uh, the western half of the United States. Um, Sam and his family um, lived for three years from 1942 uh, to 1945 um, in uh, a room 20 feet uh, by 20 feet uh, in a uh, concentrated um, uh, group of 400 barracks that housed during the war a total of 14,000 uh, Japanese Americans. Um, after the war, um, Sam um, went on to uh, UC Berkeley to get a, uh, an undergraduate degree. He went on to UCLA to get a, a master's or an advanced degree in uh, uh, aeronautical engineering. And then he um, had a uh, distinguished 42-year career, first with Douglas Aircraft and then the Boeing Company as one of its leading rocket scientists. Sam is the only person I know um, who has a career that actually does require you to be a rocket scientist. Um, uh, after he retired from that career, um, he was contacted by one of the folks at our foundation um, and was invited uh, to consider the, uh, an invitation to uh, to tell a story about his experiences and recollections of his years as uh, during World War II and the experiences of his family. And uh, I think Sam thought about that for a minute and said, why not? Uh, and since that fateful decision about six years ago, Sam has now uh, traveled across every corner of the United States he has spoken to um, more than 300 audiences, ranging from 
high school classrooms to uh, the Harvard Law School to the U.S. Department of Justice and now to the um, Unitarian Society of Madison, uh, Wisconsin. Um, he is um, um, more than 40 years old, um, but despite that, uh, maintains a schedule that most 40-year-olds um, should not try to maintain. He has been in Wisconsin, I think, for about 40 hours, and this is his um, seventh presentation. Um, uh, now, S Sam has, so we can't spoil this, has a, an extremely good impression of Wisconsin. Uh, he was in uh, Manitowoc at the Maritime Museum, uh, was a little bit anxious about uh, some rumors that there were some folks who had a kind of hostile view of digging up this particular story about World War II who were likely to come to the museum, so a little bit apprehensive. He got in there on a Friday and uh, was hungry and needed something uh, to uh, eat and uh, stumbled into a Wisconsin institution that he's not familiar with, Friday night fish fry at a local tavern. Um, and. Uh, had uh, delicious lake perch, but the highlight of this uh, evening and his introduction to Wisconsin is uh, some elderly woman uh, bought him a drink. So he's now convinced that Wisconsin is, in fact, an extremely hospital, hospitable place and uh, one that it will flatter him uh, as being younger than he actually uh, thinks he is. Um, I have to say one other story about his, his relentless and, and inspiring commitment to tell this important story and to be part of um, the kind of important conversation we're going to have um, tonight. Um, about a year ago, um, uh, while Sam was in the midst of this work, we were having a meeting in Cody, Wyoming, a foundation meeting. Um, Sam was... Uh, scheduled to do a lot of interviews in addition to going to our regular organizational meetings. Um, and uh, uh, we finished our, our evening meeting. Everybody went home to bed. I got a call at 4 o'clock in the morning that I should go to the Cody Memorial Hospital um, because um, Sam Mahara had had a minor stroke and was in the hospital and I want oh, asked me to come and uh, uh, do whatever assistance may be needed. Um, I got there, and an hour later, Sam was uh, sitting up uh, uh, in his hospital bed as if he were simply uh, lounging by a pool. And uh, um, I said, are you all right? Are you fine? He said, fine. We talked a little bit. He said, I'm going to get the movement, my left hand back very shortly. They give you great care here. Um, about an hour after we were talking, uh, someone calls him up. Uh, he's the reporter from the local newspaper and says, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your illness. Uh, we, can, um, we can take that, uh, that interview that we were going to have at 9 o'clock this morning and postpone it until you come back to Cody next time. Uh, and I hope, uh, I hope you get well. And Sam's response over the phone while I was sitting there is, well, if you're well enough to come, I'm well enough to do the interview at 9. And he did an hour and a half interview with immaculate concentration. Uh, and so this is the kind of unusual uh, uh, person that we have who has an amazing, extraordinary story. So without further ado and with much appreciation, let me introduce to you Sam Mahara. Thank you very much, Doug. Can everybody hear me okay? All right, fine. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having us. We're, uh, we're delighted. And uh, by the way, I haven't had a woman buy me a drink since college. <laughs> what an experience. Anyway, <laughs> let me start with a question. How many of you have heard about these prison camps for Japanese during World War II? Oh, impressive. Everybody's heard about these. How many of you heard about a person involved in this activity called Fred Korematsu? Korematsu. 
wow, wow, good percentage, maybe 20 percentage. That's, that's very, very inter interesting. Um, in my tours around the country, very few people have heard about these camps. And almost no one has heard about Korematsu. But I'm going to cover these things in my talk, and uh, hopefully you'll be better informed in case you need to have that information. For a long time, I was wondering how to open my speech and searching for the right sentence, perhaps, that describes what I'm going to talk about. And uh, all of you remember in um, September of last year, there was a grand opening of the African American Museum in Washington, D.C. And uh, I turned on my television in California, and the first person who came on the, on the, on the program was uh, President George Bush. And the very first sentence that he said on opening the, the, the um, uh, commemorating the opening of the, of the facility, the first sentence he said is as follows. A great nation does not hide history. Isn't that remarkable? A great nation does not hide history. And I thought to myself, that's my line. That's the one I want to use. I've been looking for it. And, uh, and so I, I said to myself, that's what I'm going to open my speech with from now on. Because what I'm going to tell you are a lot of things that Many people don't know about, but it's so important to understand the history uh, as, as to what happened. And also I find out it's very, very uh, memorable to make it personal, especially when I speak to uh, young kids. I've done high school and middle school kids. And, and when I make it personal, I talk about what happened to me and, 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 the, and the environment that was going on at the time. Uh, they tend to remember, and so I, I do interject a lot of the personal experience in that. In order to do that, let me introduce you to my family. We, we call ourselves the following, the people who were born in Japan who were immigrants, uh, we call them Issei. E comes from the number Ichi in Japanese, which is, you know, num number one, two, three, it's Ichi ni san. And so the, the immigrants we call Ichi uh, Issei, uh, number one, person, Issei. And um, my brother and I were born in the U.S., and therefore we call ourselves Nisei. We are the second generation of the people who were uh, immigrants, because my brother and I were born in San Francisco, you know, so we are U.S. citizens. Our kids would become Sansei, because they'll be a third generation of people. I've been speaking at colleges, and now these kids, when I do speak to them, and occasionally I run into uh, people of uh, students of Japanese ancestry, there are now Gosei and Rokusei. So six generations since this happened way back in 1941. It's amazing. And I typically ask them, did your grandparents talk about these camps? And typically the answer is no. They didn't tell us anything. They wanted to forget it, which is awful. That's a crime. They shouldn't, they shouldn't keep it quiet. They should talk about what happened. And so I've been on a campaign to be able to teach these youngsters, especially the, the Asian kids uh, in college, that uh, here's what really happened and you need to know that. So it's very, very rewarding for me to do that. The reason for these camps began before I was born, it began before my father was born. It began way back in the 1800s. And you may remember when the great railroads were expanding to the west and they, the railroad companies hired uh, Asian immigrants. They hired Chinese and Japanese to come and finish the railroad to go out west. And when they finished it, they decided to, uh, the, the, the workers decided to stay in the U.S. and 80% of them stayed in California. So here we have uh, immigrants who were uh, Asians, Japanese, and Chinese settled mostly in California, Oregon, and, and Washington. And as a result, the people who lived there became very upset and concerned about this massive numbers of Asians living in the area. And so we started to see these kinds of political cartoons. This is dated 1899, way back. And it shows a, an, a, um, an Asian carrying a, a, a firearm, and he's in his mouth he's carrying a bloodied knife, and he's standing on top of a, kill, uh, of a lady, a woman who killed, he killed just uh, moments before, and the caption 
Yellow terror, that's what they used to call us in those days. The yellow terror threatens white women. So the image is getting across that uh, the people of Asian uh, backgrounds are dangerous because they will threaten white women. So that image went across the newspapers and the media. The media made it really difficult for all Asians uh, to be able to live comfortably in their chosen place of living, which is typically along the West Coast, okay? Then uh, we had continuing problems. For example, <laughs> there was a James Phelan who was the mayor of San Francisco in 1920, and he, he decided uh, to run for the Senate. And um, in the process of that uh, election, he made an, a, a, a promise that if he's elected, he will keep California white. That was his promise. Well, he failed because we stayed there. And, and as a result, uh, that again, you know, it shows you that, that you know, you can run politically and become, uh, uh, have a, a, a very high position, uh, you know, using racism as an example, but that's the kind of image that was going on at that time. So that was a real problem. Right after Pearl Harbor, we, we all became very concerned. We, because uh, I remember asking my parents, you know, wh why? Why would Japan do such a thing? It was awful. And, and my parents couldn't answer. They, they had no idea. It was a surprise to them. But they really worried. They really worried because they were not American citizens. They were immigrants. And in that time period, starting from about 1920 uh, on through uh, 1941, uh, Asians were not allowed to become U.S. citizens. It's just completely forbidden. And therefore, they still were uh, technically citizens of Japan. And therefore, they wondered, what's going to happen to us? You know, for example, will they, uh, will they allow the kids who are citizens to stay in the U.S., but all of the parents were forced to go back to Japan, for example. They were worried. Uh, and a, a more severe case might be, gee, what if they rounded all, all of these Issei's up and maybe take them out in the desert and make them disappear somehow. They, they, they were very concerned. So that, that environment was, was very difficult. But one of the worst experiences that we had were the kids who went back to school on Monday morning, December the 9th, uh, December the 8th. Okay, remember, December the 7th was Sunday morning, right? And then on December the 8th, Monday morning, the kids went back to school. And now they're facing the teacher announcing to the entire class, you people caused Pearl Harbor. A teacher teaching racism to the entire class. But that was going on in several classrooms at the time, accusing us of being the problem causing this particular issue. So that was a kind of a problem that we faced at that time. Here's a cartoon that came out uh, during that time, and it shows a Japanese soldier with a weapon and a Nazi German soldier with a weapon encroaching upon the continental U.S. and implying that uh, everyone is, is in danger uh, because of the presence of, of German and Japanese living here in the U.S. So that was not a, a good thing for us. This is the most ridiculous cartoon of all. There's a stream of Japanese starting to build up in Washington, building up more and more people in Oregon, going through Northern California, finally settling in Southern California with this huge, huge number of Japanese ready to pick up their boxes of nitroglycerin. And here's a spotter on top of the house when based on a signal he sees from the enemy ships offshore He's going to then get the order to pass out these boxes of TNT. And the instructions are to take these and go out and blow up the, the, the um, American defense installations uh, in, uh, in Southern California. But that's the kind of, of uh, uh, image uh, that was prepared to show that it's the people who are living here who are dangerous. By the way, notice who drew that cartoon. Dr. Seuss, the children's artist. And he made many more of these. Uh, so so that, that was an element of you know, um, uh, uh, making it official. Uh, and this policy uh, uh, you know, should be spread around among all the people. And, and that's what, what uh, is, an, is an example of what made life extremely difficult. I remember this headline in the San Francisco Examiner. And it said, you know, 
uh, publishes, Ulster, getting rid of all Japs in California is near. The word Japs is an acronym, uh, abbreviation for the full word Japanese, and we hate it. In fact, because of our experience, uh, use of that word, uh, I teach, in fact, I teach the teachers. I said, please, please teach, teach your kids not to use that phrase because it, it did a severe, severe harm by having this publicized. Uh, and in fact, think about it as a misuse of the N-word. How would you teach the kids in your class that they shouldn't use the N-word casually? Uh, now, from my viewpoint, I think it's okay to show historically what was going on in those days, to show these kinds of pictures. But at the same time, make sure you give the lesson that today, to use these words or phrases, you know, socially is, is not acceptable, very, very derogatory. And so that's an important message I give when I give talks to these uh, uh, school people. Here's a billboard, a billboard one block from my house. I used to live in San Francisco, uh, a place called corner of uh, Sutter Street and Buchanan Street, and go up the block, one block, and there's a corner of Sutter Street and Laguna, okay? And there was a billboard on that corner, and here's a billboard saying, bye-bye, Japs, one block from my house. How would you like it if somebody put up a billboard a block from your house naming your background, your ethnicity, your race, saying goodbye? Awful. But that was the kind of environment that we faced at that time. Dorothea Lange's famous picture of the migrant mother. A brief history on this picture. Dorothea Lange was good for taking pictures of people, and the government knew it. So the government decided to hire her and go to the farm country of California and start finding an environment where she could accurately record what, what it was like. What did the people feel like in the farms during this Great Depression? This is back in the early 30s. And uh, so uh, uh, Dorothy interviewed a number of people, and she found this lady uh, who uh, that morning just sold the tires off of her automobile in order to get money to pay for food to feed her kids. Now that's how bad it was at one time in the Depression. And so Dorothy found that out, and so she asked him to, uh, you know, is it okay to take a picture? And she took this picture and became the most famous because you don't need any words, no captions needed. You can tell this, this family's in deep trouble. And, and so for that, it became you know, her iconic photo uh, at the time. So the government knew it. And, and so the government said, uh, Dorothea, we want to hire you in 1942, early 42. We want to hire you because we want you to record the removal of the Japanese people from San Francisco, my, my hometown. And, and take nice pictures because we don't want the public to feel that uh, this process of removal of people uh, was inhumane. You know, make it look good for the government. And so uh, they did not know Dorothy doesn't take orders. She takes pictures the way she wants to. And you're going to see some that I think that will be uh, truly offensive uh, to the government. The most famous picture that Dorothy Lang took is this one here. There were seven-year-old girls doing their morning Pledge of Allegiance at the same grammar school. And she sensed this is going to be an important picture because of the facial expressions these kids gave. You can look at their faces, you know, and they say, I pledge allegiance to the, to the flag of the United States. They, you can feel that intensity by looking at their, their faces. And, and she said, oh, that was, that's, that's a great picture. She snapped that camera at the right time, and that became the iconic photo that she took. And that's been used in museums and, and books and so forth. So became a very, very popular uh, photograph. Uh, two year old, uh, two second graders, the seven year old girls at uh, the same grammar school. I'll talk a little bit more about uh, uh, one of these girls here in, in a moment. Uh, but all of you know that particular phrase in the uh, pledge with liberty and justice for all. When the police come and the military armed police come and they remove you from your homes and take you to a prison camp, you are denied liberty. And when they do that without any judicial process to find out if you are uh, uh, guilty or, or suspected of a crime, to do that without uh, any basis uh, legally, uh, you are denied justice. And that's the whole point. In this one phrase, 
from the Constitution, our rights were destroyed at that moment when they removed us and they were put, we were put away uh, into prison. And that's been the basis for our complaints that this should never have been done. So, so that was a, a, an important event uh, that happened. President Roosevelt had some advisors and these advisors recommended an executive order. Does that sound familiar these days, advisors and executive orders? Well, it happened in 1942. The advisors recommended that uh, President Roosevelt sign an executive order which said, I hereby give the authority to remove anyone in this country, I give that authority to remove anyone to the local military commanders of the district in the US. Okay, so he's giving, he never mentioned Japanese, he never mentioned German, he simply says anyone based upon the judgment of the local military commander. Well, where are the military districts in the U.S. at the time? Well, there were four of them in the continental U.S. and, and, and one uh, covering Hawaiian Islands. There was a, a general in charge of the East Coast called Lieutenant General Hugh Drum, Hugh Drum. And uh, General Drum had a problem because in the East Coast there were very severe uh, military threat, the submarine, you know, the, the famous U-boats that, that went up and down the East Coast uh, looking for uh, shipping uh, th targets. Uh, and in the East Coast, there were a lot of these German families and Italian families. He had to decide, shall I remove them? The industry leaders came to uh, General Drum and said, do not do that. Because if you remove these German and Italian workers, my, my business will be ruined. Uh, you know, they make up the core of our, our employment and we cannot put out the products we're expected to. So don't do that, it's bad for business. And General Drum decided, therefore, I'm not going to remove the German and Japanese, uh, German and Italian families from the East Coast. Now there were a few leaders of the community that the FBI uh, put, uh, detained, uh, but that was an exception. It's the families that were involved and he said, no, let them stay put. On the islands of Hawaii, of all places, you know, the, the, the home of Pearl Harbor, uh, General Emmons had a problem. He had to decide, shall I remove the Japanese from the Hawaiian Islands? And he had a problem because Japanese made up 40% of the Hawaiian Islands in 1942, 40%. And the pineapple industry came up to uh, General Emmons and said, don't do that. I won't be able to produce my pineapples because that's most of my workforce. So M, uh, uh, General Emmons decided, I'm, I am not going to remove the Japanese families from Hawaii. On the other hand, we have this general in the West Coast called Lieutenant General John DeWitt. DeWitt. Turns out, General DeWitt is a racist. He hated Japanese. Now, how do we know that? What's the, what's the evidence that he hated a, a race? Well, for example, he put out a written order. He defined who is a Japanese. Now, everybody here has four grandparents, right? Everybody has four grandparents. Everybody here has eight great-grandparents, right? So far? Everybody here has 16 great-great-grandparents, right? Okay. General DeWitt said, if any one of your 16 great-great-grandparents was Japanese and all the rest were white, you are a Japanese. That's his definition. And he put out that order as to who will be removed. Now, what's that really mean? Well, did you know there were, there were orphanages along the coast? San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, there were orphanages and they had kids of mixed parents, including babies. So with that order, General DeWitt said, take those babies and put them into the prison camp. That's what he did. So that's clear, clear evidence that he hated us as a race. And so when he got this authority to move, he, he just, no question about it, it was easy for him. Remove all people, Japanese ancestry. You know. But that was the example of what happened as a result of a policy, the executive order by President uh, uh, Roosevelt to, to do that. We had these signs going up in front of our homes, pl plastered on post, lamp posts and walls. It gave specific instructions on, on what to do and what not to do. For example, um, uh, it, uh, the first instruction was you must register your families. 
uh, to make sure the government knew who you are and where you live. And then the next one might be, uh, was, uh, you shall be in your homes between 8 o'clock at night, 6 in the morning. We were under house arrest during the nighttime. Uh, another rule was uh, you shall not go outside a certain boundary around this Japantown area. Certain streets were named as, as, as the wall uh, of the border of, um, of the Japantown area. Um, and other similar rules uh, like that. So with these rules, the first one then being uh, shown in this picture, again by Dorothea Lang, she took this picture of the parents lining up in front of an office in Japantown to register the family. So the government required, the military required us to register who is in your family and your relatives uh, and, and your friends. So that's how the government found out who's who and where they lived. See, because at that time, the government did not know where everyone lived. We had a census in 1940. Remember, every 10 years, census. 1940, there was one. And, and we were required to list who's Japanese, but our family moved. We moved to a new house <laughs> since the census, and they didn't know where we went. So that's another reason why they wanted to do this, to have uh, registration. And again, I'll talk a little bit more about registration today. It's a real hot topic and, uh, and one of the lessons learned. Now, this photograph is, by the way, very, very important. See the military uh, guard with a weapon forcing people to do things. When the government saw this photograph, they said, Dorothy, we told you don't take these kinds of pictures, you know, <laughs> using force. It's embarrassing, you know. That's not what we wanted to show, you know, this inhumane. That was wrong, don't, don't do that. So what the government did was uh, uh, took all 1,000 of Dorothea Lange's important photographs and put them away in a vault at the University of California in Berkeley in the, inside the Bancroft Library and uh, instructions to be uh, kept under lock and key for a long time. We finally got approval to look at these, and, and these were distributed. And, and um, uh, uh, when we got these, uh, I asked uh, uh, the, uh, the faculty there uh, at the uh, university for permission to copy these and show these uh, to you today. So it was at least good of them to be able to look at these as evidence of what happened during World War II. There were three people, three Japanese-American people who decided not to follow the orders. Out of, hard to believe, out of, out of 120,000, only three people complained that you shouldn't ha this shouldn't happen to them. Fred Korematsu was the first one. Fred was a little different from most of us. He had a white girlfriend. And by the way, in those days, uh, our parents objected to having uh, a friend who was in, not in the Japanese uh, uh, lineage because, uh, you know, let's face it, uh, our parents, a lot of them were racist as well. <laughs> they wanted to keep the strain and the pure and all that, you know, you hear that garbage about, about how the uh, immigrants wanted to do things like that. But our parents were pretty bad about that and, and they frowned upon uh, uh, seeing people of, of, uh, of another race. Uh, and, but Fred, Fred was different. He wanted, he, he, he really liked, enjoyed uh, getting along with this Italian girl. And, and so he, he decided uh, with his, his girlfriend to uh, beat the system, not go to the camps. And the way that he would do it is uh, Fred would go to a plastic surgeon and instruct them to the surgeon, make me look white. <laughs> and, and so that's exactly what it uh, and he changed his name, and he had to go find a job because he needed money for he and his girlfriend to go to Arizona to get married. Because in those days, uh, you, you, you know, mixed marriages were not allowed in California. So, so they needed money to move, and so he went to, uh, uh, went to look for a job. He was caught and, and uh, went to jail, uh, went to prison uh, after a trial, and he admitted uh, that he tried to get away, and uh, so he was, he was guilty. Uh, the case went to the Supreme Court. And uh, he tried to get it dismissed, uh, you know, on, on several grounds. Uh, but uh, the Supreme Court looked at the record and said, you admitted you violated the rules. We can't do anything about it. This is the Supreme Court. And so, you know, guilty as charged, you know, and so the, the conviction was sustained. Make sure that he, he, uh, he stayed in jail. Uh, the fellow in the middle, Gordon Hirabayashi, is similar. He was a student at the uh, University of Washington in Seattle. And uh, what he was, uh, he was raised as a Quaker 
And, and the Quakers taught him about his constitutional rights. And so when it came to uh, his rights, he wanted to stay and study with the rest of his white friends in the library late at night. And so he stayed in the library past the curfew time and uh, violated that rule. And he was caught and uh, sent to prison. The fellow on the right is a lawyer, one of the first lawyers of Japanese ancestry in uh, Portland, Oregon. And uh, what, what he did was uh, uh, he knew his rights because they taught him in law school about uh, civil rights. And so he decided to go out in the streets of Portland and find a policeman and demand that he be arrested. And he's going to challenge that arrest in court. That was his plan. Well, he got arrested, but he, he didn't get very far because he went to solitary confinement for nine, uh, nine months, and then he went to a regular prison camp. So, so he failed. So all three, the trials went, uh, went on up to um, uh, the Supreme Court, and uh, it failed uh, to get the convictions overturned. Dorothy Lange kept taking more pictures. Here's one family uh, called the Mochita family, and here are the kids. Now the instructions are everyone will be wearing these dog tags with the name and prisoner number. That's what they had to, everybody had to wear these dog tags with prisoner number. And so the, now we're getting ready for the move. And so make sure that the kids are identified. They're wearing these dog tags. Here's a picture of a young lady was getting ready to move and she was carrying the only thing important, you know, they said one handbag, well, the, her doll was the most important, so that's what uh, Dorothea Lang took this picture of this girl with a doll. Here's another one, this is kind of hard to see, but imagine, you can see this boy, he's about four years old, and uh, the two military guards uh, are searching him, as well as the plainclothes officer doing a body search for weapons of a four-year-old before they put him on the bus to, to go to the prison camp. But that's the condition. This is one of the most priceless photographs that she took, and, and she sensed that, that time, the perfect timing of, of when such an inhumane activity took place. The government hated this picture. This is, this is bad. So anyway, uh, uh, you know, she deserves a lot of credit for having the guts to take the pictures that, that were very, very important. We all went to the first camps. The first camps were uh, racetracks, horse racetracks. So the government closed all the horse racetracks on the West Coast. And they, they made prisons out of these horse racetracks. And they put barbed wire fences, and they put guard towers, and, and the soldiers with weapons to make sure we don't get out. And the first people who went to these tracks had to live in horse stalls. But since there were only a hundred horse stalls, and there were thousands of people coming in, they had to build quickly more shacks right in front. I remember living in one of those shacks right across from the horse stalls. And uh, I remember thinking, am I lucky that I don't have to live inside a smelly horse stall, but the shack wasn't much better. It was, it was very, very compact. Um, then we, get, we got on a train. Three months after we got there, we got on this train, um, and now the military's out full force, you know, shoulder to shoulder, making sure we don't escape. We were on that train for three days and nights not knowing where we were going, and these guards would hop out every time the train stops, circle the train, make sure no one escapes, uh, and, and kept that up until we got, in our train, we got to Wyoming, in northern Wyoming, very, very remote uh, place. On the west, I already talked about these, uh, these horse racetracks, uh, state fairgrounds that are on the west side. Uh, in the middle of the country, there were existing federal prisons. There were existing federal prisons. And uh, the government uh, identified men only who were considered dangerous. Japanese men who were considered dangerous. Well, who are dangerous Japanese men? The FBI identified them as the following. If you were a teacher of a Japanese language school, or at least the, the, the heads of those uh, Japanese language schools, they were identified as dangerous because they might be preaching the, 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 the philosophy of the Japanese government, and, and that's not what the U.S. government wants. Who else is dangerous? Well, um, business owners are dangerous because they know how to organize an activity, how to you know, gather employees and, and get things done, and so these leaders are dangerous. Also, guess who's dangerous? Ministers are dangerous. Ministers are dangerous because they know how to preach the gospel 
And if they taught everybody in the congregation about ways to conduct espionage and sabotage, that's dangerous. So all these men only who were considered dangerous went to these existing federal prisons. The rest of us, you know, mostly women and children, elderly, and a few other men had to go to the main camps, and there are 10 of them. There's one in Wyoming, uh, where I went, uh, Idaho, one in Colorado and Utah, uh, two out here in Arkansas, two in the southern part of Arizona, and two on the eastern side of California. Where is Hart Mountain? Well, if you've been to Wyoming, you probably have been to Yellowstone in the northwest corner. Uh, and east of that area, there's a little town called Cody, Wyoming, named after uh, Buffalo Bill Cody, uh, who created that town. And uh, it was maybe about 2,000 people, two, 3,000 people, not, not very big. And there's another smaller town up here called Powell, Wyoming, uh, about a distance of a maybe a, a 30 miles between Cody and Powell. And um, Powell had maybe about 1,000 people, a very, very small town. And Hart Mountain is the name of the mountain that existed between Cody and Powell. So it's about 15 miles away from either Cody or Powell. And I was wondering, what did the people of Cody think when they heard that there are all these Japanese people coming to their, their area, you know, to, to this camp? And so I started looking at the headlines of the Cody newspaper and then the Powell newspaper, and here's a headline from the Cody paper. 10,000 Japs to be interned here when they announced the location of being at Hart Mountain. You know, 10,000 here, like downtown Cody, but you know, we were 15 miles away from Cody, but that doesn't matter. That headline gets all the people of Cody excited. And, and you know, they're, they're thinking, what are we gonna do? That's dangerous. <coughs> Gotta make sure it's secure and they don't get out and, and, and come after us. The paper in Powell was even more ridiculous. 10,000 is a lot of Japanese. Well, of course, when there was only a few families in the whole state of Wyoming who were Japanese before the war. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they, they were paranoid and they got all shaken up and wondering what's going to happen because all these Japanese are going to come. And, and ultimately, they had their way to make sure the design of the camp is truly a prison that we won't get out. And, 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 and so I lay the blame for our removal from, uh, from homes uh, to uh, the uh, people in the White House, uh, but I lay the blame on making into a prison to the people of the state, the people of Wyoming, people of Idaho, and so forth. But that was the conditions that existed at that time. The government continued making the camp very quickly. There's 2,000 workers they hired to come into the camp, and they built this, this uh, the plan, according to this design, it was some 30 blocks. Each block had uh, 24 barracks, and each barrack had uh, six rooms uh, in order to house uh, all, uh, well, up to as much as 14,000 uh, people at one time. Uh, we had a, a hospital, which is simply more barracks, but with a common corridor. And then we had a, a plan to build three schools, one high school and two grammar schools. And, and the government uh, started to build the high school, but the prisoners, when we got there, it wasn't finished. So we finished the high school, and then we started to work on the uh, uh, grammar school. But guess what? The local people of Wyoming said, stop, don't do that. Why are you building new schools for prisoners when we don't have new schools and we're not even in prison? So the government decided not to build any more schools and so what we had to do was to convert some of the barracks into grammar school. I remember going to a barrack in order to, to uh, have a, my grammar school education uh, at that time. The workers went, worked very quickly uh, around the clock, building, uh, assembling these barracks at the rate of one every hour until they finished all 400 barracks uh, of the camp. And I remember when I went into the camp getting, getting from the government two numbers. The first number you see is my room or my cell number. Uh, 14 is the block number, 22 is the barrack number, and C is my room within uh, the barrack. Uh, and it's very important to remember that because if you don't remember it, you don't know where you live and no one else can tell you because you don't have an address. So everyone had to remember 
And those of us who went to the camp, you know, that many years ago still remember their block, barrack, and room number has been kind of burned into our minds. And so that's one way we identify with each other as to who went, uh, really went to, to Heart Mountain. Uh, the number right below it is my prisoner number, 26737 uh, D at the end. And uh, uh, that was a very important because even today there are records of every one of the 120,000 people, records on everyone in Washington, D.C. And it has every piece of paper generated by the staff at Heart Mountain on, on you as an individual. So I remember going, uh, I went to Washington to look at my, my records, my father's records, and, um, and my grandfather's records. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, in a moment. If I had to show just one picture of the entire talk, it would be this one here. On the left, you see a, a guard on top of the guard tower with a weapon pointing in toward the barrack. Uh, in the middle, you see details of the guard tower with the floodlights aiming in toward the, the people and the barracks. And on the right side, very innovative, English signs and Japanese signs along the fence. And it gave a warning, stop, do not cross, otherwise you might get hurt and shot and maybe killed. That defines a prison. I've given this talk many times and a few people, not many, a few people say, oh, that didn't look like Alcatraz. And, and, and my point is, it doesn't have to. You know, if this room, for example, if you cross these walls for some reason, and you went outside and you knew that they were, they were uh, secure and guarded and you might get hurt if you go outside this room, you are in a prison. And that's exactly what we had at Heart Mountain. It was a prison condition and, and there's no, no question about it. There were six rooms in the barrack and we were in the middle room exactly 20 feet by 20 feet and uh, four cots almost wall to wall uh, and that, that's about all the space we had. No utilities except one light bulb in the middle of the ceiling. Uh, and so we had to do all of our business outside in, in another, another building and have our mess hall food in another building. Toilets were an embarrassment. There are there 300 people every half a block and everyone in that half a block had to use this one set of toilets and the, not a single partition uh, between the seats. They fed us food at the start, and it turns out, if you can look closely at this picture, here's a, a plate of uh, potatoes, uh, and, and here's a plate of uh, uh, bread, and here's uh, some pickles, uh, pickled veggies, and inside the pitcher was powdered milk. You notice in this picture, this kid is not eating, and this guy's not too happy about eating potatoes, and the reason is that's not our diet. We weren't eating that kind of food in those days. We love rice, we love fresh veggies, we like a little poultry, uh, we like fish, uh, and uh, we love whole milk. Uh, that was our diet. So we talked the government into letting us grow our own food. Very, very important, because if, if we're gonna stay here for a long time, we want at least food that we think is edible and desirable. So what we did was we talked the government into letting us grow our own food. And all that property between the, the camp and the major river that went by, this came from the Yellowstone Park uh, flowing out uh, east uh, to, toward the Mississippi. And so we, we created farms out of all this desolate land uh, and able to get good food, uh, reasonable, I wouldn't say good food, but reasonable food that we, we enjoy uh, by the end of uh, one year. The winters were horrible. I remember that winter, it hit a record minus 28 degrees. Now, maybe people in Wyoming were used to minus 28 degrees, but when you're in Southern California and you're used to 70 plus degrees all year round, uh, we weren't ready for this. And that was, that was a tough time. We had a hospital, but by name only it was at a hospital because the doctors in there were really questionable. I remember because I, I remember going to the hospital and, and my leg muscles uh, really hurt bad. I was, I was, uh, I, I couldn't move my legs. It, it, it was awful. I couldn't figure it out. I went to the hospital and the doctors looked at me. They didn't know what I had. And um, after about a month, it, it went away. So I was able to, to see. Uh, but I looked at my medical records a few years ago 
And I wanted to find out what did the doctor say about me. And I wrote, and here's this entry: Mr. Sam Mihara has arthritis of the muscle. <laughs> no such thing, right? You look in the you you look on the internet and look for the definition of arthritis. They don't, there's nothing about muscle. It's all in the joints. What kind of a doctor did we have at this at this hospital? And I, I I really questioned it. My father, though, he had glaucoma of his eyes. And in San Francisco, before the war, he was able to uh, maintain his eyesight, but he saw a specialist. It took a specialist because in those days, they did not have the medication uh, to treat uh, glaucoma. And so uh, through a procedure, he was able to maintain you know, the proper pressures and so forth. He, he, he was able to see. He went into Heart Mountain. No one, no one knew how to take care of glaucoma. So he went blind in, in, in the Heart Mountain, and he never... Uh, ever saw again after uh, going to the camp. So he became blind and I remember having to guide him wherever, uh, wherever he, he went and uh, it, it, was, it was not easy uh, for our family because uh, of this problem. My grandpa had a worse case. After he got to the camp he was diagnosed as colon cancer. And um, I wondered what happened to him because in a matter of a few months he looked awful. He was down to skin and bones. He, you know, something's wrong here, and, and he, he died after about a few months. And so I wondered for a long time what, what really happened to him. I looked at his medical records because, you know, as a relative of anyone who was in the camp, you can, you can get access to their medical records. And so I wrote to Washington and I, I, I looked at his records, and there it was in the medical records of Grandpa, the entry Grandpa Mihara shall be treated with a laxative for cancer, milk of magnesia. They kept him pumped up with milk of magnesia. His system was completely clean. He died of malnutrition, of all things. But that's the kind of treatment he was getting. So that's why I say, you know, it, we, we hurt bad because of the policy of removal, because of the policy of not allowing good, reasonable good medical care. And, and so we've been bitter for a long, long time uh, after that, uh, that event. Grandpa. Uh, had a problem, uh, grandma had a problem because what to do with his remains and, and there was not a single crema crematory. There was a cemetery in the camp and, and grandma did not want him buried because you know, she's never going to go back to Wyoming to go pay, pay her respects to grandpa so she wanted a cremation. Well there was not a single, not a single crematory in the whole state of Wyoming. It was a brand new technology in 1940s uh, invented in Europe and, and so the, uh, the funeral home in and Paul made up a, a shipping container, put Grandpa in it, and went on a freight train to another state, and uh, he was cremated. The ashes brought back to live with Grandma for the rest of the time in the camp. The worst case of all happened at some of the other camps, not at Heart Mountain, where the guards got trigger happy, and they started shooting some of the prisoners inside. So there was one case like here, this guy named James Wakasa in the Utah camp, and he was shot by a guard he wasn't even trying to escape. And that happened at seven other uh, situations in, in the U.S. at these camps. And so the government uh, decided they cannot trust the guards. And so they removed the guards from the guard towers. So after about one year and a half after Heart Mountain, all of a sudden, no more guards in the guard towers. So I remember sneaking out the fence, you know, not worrying about being in a prison and getting shot. Uh, so, so that part of the history is not really revealed, but uh, uh, it, it, it's a dangerous situation when you have uh, you know, unqualified, uh, questionable guards watching out uh, over prisoners uh, in that situation. Many soldiers of Japanese ancestry served during World War II for the U.S. government. Uh, a unit, it's called the 442nd unit, it started in Hawaii because there were a lot of you know, eligible men in Hawaii. And, and when they ran short, they asked uh, the young men from the camps uh, are, are within our ranks to, to uh, volunteer, to join the military. And, and when they needed more, the military draft came to Heart Mountain and all the other camps. As a result, there were some 800 uh, men of uh, uh, draft, draft age who joined the military during World War II. Uh, and, and there's no question. But to show you the degree of uh, sincerity these soldiers had and, and wanting to make sure that they are truly 
supportive of the government, they, they, they literally sacrificed themselves. This is the, uh, the uh, commendation uh, record of this 442nd unit, identified as the most decorated unit in the entire World War II. 860 killed in action inside a regimental combat team, and maybe of about uh, 1,000 to 1,500 people. Uh, 21 Congressional Medal of Honors. That's unheard of to that degree. Uh, and 9,486 Purple Hearts. You know, that, that's a kind of, of uh, a record that was very, very rare. And that shows you simply that, uh, you know, when, when our young men decided to, to serve the country and fight for the country, it's okay. But the problem is, how can they really do that when their families are locked up in the prison by the same government? Does that make sense? And they had a lot of people, uh, some of the people objected to joining the military uh, uh, because of, of that. Toward the end, the government let us go into Cody once in a while, and, and uh, they gave us a day pass. They said, no, Sam Mehar, you are allowed to go out of camp and go visit the town of Cody, uh, but you must come back before sunset. So we had a one day pass to go into town. Um, and, and so I remember going into the town with my father, and he's now blind, and I walk, walked him up and down this street called Sheridan Avenue in Cody. And uh, since he's blind, uh, I had to explain to him what's inside each store as I walked along. And once in a while, I would see this sign, no chaps, inside my store. You know, oh, gee, what does that really mean? So my father taught me the significance of racial hatred of these people in, in Wyoming. It was, it was not a very, very good experience. Toward the end, there was one attorney, James Purcell, in San Francisco. He was a specialist in civil rights. And he figured out how to get these people out of these camps. What he did was he looked at the records of people like Korematsu, Hirabashi, and Yasui, and, and the decision by the Supreme Court, and, and he said, uh, the problem in those cases were they admitted they were guilty. And you, you know, Supreme Court can't do anything about it once you admit you're guilty. But what's needed is another person. And he found it in this lady called Mitsue Endo. And he looked at her record. Now here she, her record was spotless. She, she was a, a, a US citizen. Uh, uh, she had uh, no relationship at all with anyone in Japan. Never traveled to Japan, never associated with Japanese groups and so forth. And, and in fact, she worked for the state of California as a, uh, in the Department of Motor Vehicles. And so he said, you're the perfect model citizen. You have never committed a crime. You don't belong here because of your constitutional rights. He filed a lawsuit against the government on her behalf saying, you've got to let her go. The Constitution guarantees liberty with justice. And as a result, the Supreme Court, unanimous, nine to zero, unanimously decided to let her go, and at the same time let everyone go, because it was fundamentally unconstitutional. They got their act together, finally, after three years of being in prison. But that's the impact that it had, uh, the Supreme Court had in those days uh, when you had that situation. So we all got on the train, the same trains that brought us, went back home, California. The, the government decided to eliminate the existence of a camp, and they took all the barracks at Heart Mountain and sold them off for $1 apiece to the local farmers. And today you can drive around northern Wyoming and southern Montana, and all of a sudden you'll see a structure typically used as a storage shed, 20 feet wide, 120 feet long, three sets of stairs, or at least the, the shadow of a doorway there, that is truly an authentic prison uh, barrack. And so we're trying to recover and bring those back and recreate the camp condition that we have uh, today. When we got home, the life was bad because now the people in California didn't want us back home. And they had these kinds of signs greeting us that we should, you know, we're not welcome to keep on moving because uh, this is their country, not our country, okay? So, so life was very difficult. We went to look at our stored goods. Remember I said only one hand carry bag and the rest of the things had to be stored, and it was, it was a mess. They were broken into, we lost a lot of things, lost of valuables and so forth. So we, we complained about that, and, and uh, things were, were difficult for us. 
There, however, there's an extreme case um, of this family called the Ito family. No relation to, to Willie, but a separate family called Ito family. The fellow uh, on the left is James Ito. He was in charge of the farm operations. Very, very bright uh, agricultural major in college, and he knew how to organize the farms and, and did a great job. His wife, Toshi, uh, also uh, went through Heart Mountain, and she remembers what happened to her father when he went back to San Jose and tried to find a job, and he couldn't find one. He used to be an insurance salesman, and the insurance company would not let him uh, give him his license back so he can go back to his original trade because of racial hatred. So as a result, I'll let Toshi tell you what happened to her father. Not being able to provide for his family left him desperate. And so he committed suicide. He finally figured out that if he committed suicide, my mother and I would be taken care of because uh, she would get the premiums, I mean the money from the insurance. It happened when Toshi was a newlywed on her honeymoon. She received a call that her father was sick and she needed to come home. She remembers stepping off that train and being told what really happened. I just, just started to cry and I went to my mother and I hugged her and I said, I'm so sorry, you know. And then when I got home, I went to his bed, and on the side he slept, and I just lay there, and I cried, and I could smell his hair tonic that he wore. And Oh, I never cried so much in my life. <sighs> very sad. I know Toshi well. I see her about once a month, and, and uh, very courageous of her to talk about uh, suicide in her family. Uh, I know other families where they had that similar problem, and they said, don't, you know, Mr. Mahara, please don't talk about it, because we're, we're ashamed of what steps that one went through when you get that degree of race, uh, racial problems. So. Um, but Toshi was different. She wanted the world to know what happened, uh, and, and good for her because that was important. So as a result, uh, we, we were unhappy after all this was over. We wanted an apology, very simple, single word, apology from the government for what they did to us. And it took 50 years uh, by a large team of special people, uh, attorneys, working hard to try to get an apology from Congress and, of course, the White House as a result. Uh, and uh, also we wanted some compensation uh, money-wise for the things that we lost, uh, the damages that happened uh, during that time. Part of that process of getting an apology were exhibits like this one here at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., uh, just before the bill was passed. And uh, inside the exhibit were pictures of the U.S. Japanese-American soldiers who fought, many of who died in, in uh, Europe, uh, and also the pictures of their own families who were you know, caught and brought to these prison camps, their own families in these prison camps. Like this picture that you see here. This is the Masuda family. They live uh, near me in, in uh, Southern California. And uh, the sergeant here, Sergeant Kazmasuda in uniform, came to the camp to say goodbye to his extended family. So this picture was taken and shows the entire family inside the camp. And, and he said goodbye. And right after that, he went shipped off to Italy and he died uh, for fighting for the US government. And that picture was sent to the White House. And, and, and we had it uh, processed up through the, the ranks of the White House. President Ronald Reagan finally saw this and he remembered, he remembered this particular case. He was a captain, young army a captain in Los Angeles, and he remembers going to the memorial service for Sergeant Masuda after his remains came back. And he made a speech. President Reagan made a speech when he was an army captain, you know, thanking the family for the courageous action of their son. Uh, and, and he remembered that. Uh, so he said, oh no, this 
this is appropriate. We need to apologize. And so he signed the bill against the, against the recommendations by his advisors. You know, those bad advisors came getting in the way. He said, no, no, this is too important. And therefore, he signed the bill. And two years after that, I received a letter from the then president, uh, uh, George H.W. Bush, the first George Bush. And it had the key words in there uh, of um, uh, a sincere apology uh, to me, signed by President uh, Bush. And also, there was a small check uh, of uh, helping to cover the damages uh, that happened at the time. So that, that went a, uh, quite a ways to help you know, solve the problem that we had uh, at that time. Heart Mountain today, uh, not much different. The mountain's still there, it looks nice. Uh, but uh, we decided to do something different and longer lasting that would be useful to society, and that is to build a learning center. I call it a school. And, and we bring in uh, uh, lots of people, especially young people, uh, and uh, teach them uh, what really happened at this prison camp, like this group of kids who came in uh, from Montana, and, and uh, in one day, uh, we would you know, immerse them with uh, learning what happened at that site, go through the, the school and, and really understanding the situation, what caused it, uh, and so forth. So that, that program is now on its way. It's doing very, very well. We're, we're increasing the number of visitors every year, uh, so we're, we're, we're pleased with that activity. When that facility was dedicated in 2011, uh, I remember going to the town of Cody and looking into the windows, just like I did in 1942, and see what the people think about us. And here are these signs, every window in the store, welcome Japanese Americans. My goodness, how ch times have changed. The people of Cody are, are way different from the days of, of 1942. But I want to conclude on the idea, why did these camps exist? And they, I already told you about it. Remember I talked about the racial prejudice, and I told you about the hysteria created by the, the media, uh, these cartoons, and, and, uh, and some of the leaders who failed to honor our constitutional rights. When you have a combination of these three, that's the really a, da a dangerous situation. That's when the weapons come out and they start doing these, these strange and undesirable things of mass imprisonment of an entire race or an entire uh, group of people. But even today, even today, when I give a talk, I can tell, I can tell by few, few people, not many, a handful of people, they think it's okay to imprison entire groups of people without justice. A few people think that way. And I have to simply point out, it could have been Germans, it could have been Italians. Today, it could be Latinos, or it could be Middle Easterners or Muslims. It could be anyone. It could be your family instead of Japanese the next time. This might be your son staring at the guard wondering what's going to happen to him in the process of being removed from their homes. This could be your daughter in the middle of a Heart Mountain camp wondering with, if she's ever going to get out of the camp. And this could be your son trying to climb out of the camp in the barbed wire fences, not knowing that there's a guard with a weapon pointed straight at him. So I simply say, everybody, this is a situation that should not happen to anyone, never again, to anyone at all. Never again. Thank you very much.